Good evening. I'm Abby, a member of this congregation and a covenant pastor, and I am grateful to be here with all of you this evening. I wanted to share with you one of my fondest memories in college. There was a Jimmy John's right across the street from our campus. And we didn't have much money as we couldn't quite afford a Happy Meal at McDonald's. But if you went to Jimmy John's right before they closed, you could get a huge baguette for 50 cents. And so we'd often go over there at night, and sometimes uh, when we walked over there, we would even see the employees were handing them out to people who were hungry outside the door. Scripture is filled from front to back with stories about eating. In the ancient world, bread was literally the only food of the poor. And for those who were wealthy, it was still a significant part of their evening or their daily meals. And so if we read scripture, some even say that Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, it says, the son of man came eating and drinking because Jesus liked to eat. He liked food. The gospels are filled with stories of him gathering around the table, stories about meals. Jesus' teachings often revolve around food and the table, In Genesis chapter 3, the entire history of humanity hangs in the balance as Eve decides whether or not she'll eat a piece of fruit. The inheritance of God's people is exchanged between Esau and Jacob for birthright and stew. The Israelites wandered through the wilderness and depended entirely on God to rain manna down from the sky. Jesus' first miracle in John is to turn water into wine. And at the Last Supper, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Scripture is also filled with all kinds of rules about food, about how you prepare it, what you're allowed to eat, who you can eat with, and how you become clean enough in order to eat it. I read this week that we can view our vision of life based on the meals we eat. And I thought about that, and I wished I had read it last week, because we did a lot of fast food this week. And I thought, well, that's not a very good vision for life. But then I remembered last week, I didn't do such a great job preparing and planning either. So I tried to think back to the last time that I really made sure we were eating our fruits and vegetables and had a well-balanced meal every night of the week. And I really sat on that for a little while thinking, is that my vision for life? Can you tell what I'm about based on the meals that I eat? And then I started to think about how it's so much more than just the meals that we eat, but what do we do to prepare those meals And if we take it a step further, how are they served? Are we eating them in the car from one place to the next, or are we gathering around the table? Are we eating them alone? Are we inviting friends over? Is our family gathering together? Who are we sharing our meals with? And then I thought back to many of the meals I've shared around family tables, and it's maybe been a while since we've had, or maybe not, Thanksgivings with some controversy and conflict and political arguments and all of those kinds of things, or great Christmases celebrated with grandma's homemade recipes. 
meals remind us of all of those celebrations of accomplishments and promotions and all of those key markers of our life. And meals also represent those moments of sharing a disappointment or a loss or a betrayal. If you think about those times spent around the table, what stands out the most to you? Henry Nouwen writes, when we eat together, we are vulnerable to one another. Around the table, we can't wear weapons of any sort. Eating from the same bread and drinking from the same cup call us to live in unity and peace. And so in Genesis 3, Eve reaches for a piece of fruit in a grasp for power and independence. And in that grab, sin turned food into a curse when its original intent was to be a blessing. In Genesis 1, God gave us a variety of tastes and textures and all kinds of things to enjoy. Food was a part of our natural design. God created food so that we would remember over and over again throughout the day that we cannot survive on our own, but that we are dependent on the sustenance of our creator. We were meant to be reminded that God is the one who sustains us and our role to care for the creation that he has made. We were given a bounty of blessing, an abundant reality, and we exchanged that instead for a curse. And it's from that curse that God's people, the Hebrews, end up enslaved in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, their future or their destiny is to build brick after brick after brick under the oppressive rulers. And soon they start to increase in number. They start to have all of these children. And so the Egyptians are worried about how large their numbers are growing. And Pharaoh demands that the firstborn be thrown into the Nile. But when the Hebrews cried out to God, God was there to rescue them. Because that's what God does. When we cry out, God is there. God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and the night before they were to go came the final plague. God had one final plague for Egypt before the Israelites were to leave. There would be wailing in Egypt that final night as all of the firstborn children and animals were killed. But God would save the Hebrew people. They were to sacrifice a one-year-old goat or um, a one-year-old goat or sheep at twilight and spread that blood over the door frame on the sides and over the top. And when they did that, God would pass through Egypt and pass over their homes. It was a sign for God to move on from their home and their children would be saved. And then God instructs them that they will celebrate this day, that it will be a celebration for the rest of generation to generation to generation. And so that's what the, Jesus and his disciples are doing on the night of the Last Supper. They have gathered from all over. People travel to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And this, at this meal, at this place, this is where Jesus is having his conversation with his 12 disciples. 
as they remember the time when their firstborns were saved and how God would sacrifice his firstborn and only child. And so it's at this meal that they're gathered and Jesus' ministry which we learn throughout the Gospels, is to reach the least and the lost, the outsider, the people rejected and cast aside, the people who didn't fit or belong, the poor and the mourning and the hungry, the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. And so we look around the table, the people that Jesus is with, his 12 disciples, and we see a cast of characters. There's Andrew, who was the first disciple to be called, but we don't often hear a lot more about him. We hear more about his brother, and we hear more about the things that he did, but he's not often named. And then we learn about John, whose temper needed reigned in from Luke chapter 9, because he wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village. And then there's Matthew, the tax collector, and tax collectors were considered a political traitor. They would oppress, the the Romans were oppressing the Israelite people by taxing them as much as 90% of their income. And so Matthew had been a part of that. And then there's Simon the Zealot, a radical revolutionary. He was hoping to rise up and overthrow the Romans by violent force. And then there's Thomas, who in just a couple of days is going to doubt all that he's learned from following Jesus. He's going to doubt everything that he has seen and say, I won't believe the resurrection until I have seen it with my own eyes. And then there's Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends on the inner circle of the disciples. And Peter this very night after dinner, will deny even knowing Jesus three times. One of Jesus' closest friends, one of the first disciples he called along with his brother, one who has been following him so closely, the one that Jesus is going to build the church on, will deny that he even knows who Jesus is before the morning comes. And we can't forget about Judas, who's also sitting at the table. Another disciple, another close companion. And Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus knew that Judas had already set the plan in motion. Jesus knew that Judas had already plotted to hand him over to the authorities and have him killed. Judas had the money of the disciples that he was going to use in this instance. Jesus knew he was being betrayed by his friend at the table, and yet Judas has a seat there at the table at Jesus's final meal. And how does Jesus treat Judas knowing what's about to happen? Well, scripture tells us that he dipped the bread in the cup, and he handed it to Judas, and then Judas left. And when Judas left, how does Jesus respond? What does he say? He says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him alone. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, 
Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by if you love one another. If our vision for life is reflected in the meals that we eat, who do we share those meals with? Who is at our table? Does it represent a vision for unity or for division? Does it represent mission or exclusion? Does it represent hope and healing and restoration? Does it represent love? Because God says when we hate a brother or sister, when we hate another believer in Christ, we cannot love God. And that is a bold statement. We must love one another in order to love God. I find it fascinating to see how God designed our human bodies. And I read a study recently that said that the the hormone that comes when a mother gives birth is the same hormone that is released when we care for other people. And when that hormone is released, we cannot hate or have negative emotions about the person we're with. And so when we care for other people, our brain actually cannot have hate or hostility towards them. Those negative emotions leave our brain because God designed us to love one another. In one bite, all was lost. And in this meal tonight that we're about to share, all is restored. We come to this table tonight to be made whole, to be put back together, because this table brings healing to our broken, independent, sin-filled lives. It reminds us that Jesus is the only person who can save us. He's the only one that puts us back together, and he is the bread of life. His body broken, his body restores. The table is the great equalizer. We are all sinners, all in need of a savior, and we cannot save ourselves. At this table tonight, we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus was a servant among his disciples, washing and cleansing their feet, and he walks to the cross and bears the weight of the world. We are not just saved from something, but we are saved for something. We are saved so that we can carry this vision of love to the world. We are saved so that the world might come to know Jesus by the way that we love one another. We are saved so that the world might have hope, not fear, not despair, not division, not death, but hope and unity and life and light. The world will know we are disciples by our love. And so we gather tonight at this table sharing in the Last Supper, Jesus' final meal, where all were welcome at the table 
in glory. It didn't matter what they had done. It didn't matter what was going on. But Jesus welcomed them at the table and gave them the opportunity. And so I want to invite you all to pray with me, and then we will share in communion. Lord Jesus, like Judas, we have betrayed you. Like Peter, we have denied you. And like the other disciples, we have forsaken you. Yet you remain faithful to us unto death, even death on a cross. We plead for your forgiveness and mercy, and we ask that you strengthen us so that we do not turn aside, but that we follow you to the very end, loving one another as you have loved us. Amen.